0: Turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 35 and going through the end of the chapter. The Bible has a lot to say about treasure. And one of the things we're reminded of is that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. We're going to take a look at a lady this morning who used her earthly treasure to store up treasure in heaven. A very encouraging passage. Beginning now in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty, and has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning for the great treasure that you have given to us, every spiritual blessing in Christ. We thank you today that you have revealed to us in your word our origins, where we come from. And that's a great question among mankind. Thank you that we understand that we are created in your image and that you created everything else you commanded and it stood fast. We thank you this morning, Lord, that you have revealed to us the difference between right and wrong the rules of morality and we see that much of the world even in our own country do not understand that and lord we thank you that we do we thank you for giving us a purpose in life not just to live for selfish pleasure but to live in a way to please you and obey you and serve others and enjoy this abundant life that you have given. Lord, we thank you that we know our destiny in Christ, and you've given us an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And we thank you, Lord, that our relationship with you through your Son is indeed a relationship and not just an ideology not just a bunch of principles that we are supposed to believe or ideas that seem to be helpful. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're ever with us, you never leave us or forsake us. And we thank you, you have told us not to let our hearts be troubled and not to be afraid. Thank you that we have a new family, that we have been born into the family of God. We have a new father, a loving and kind heavenly father, we have new brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. We have a new home in glory. We have, in a sense, a blank check that you have given us as you tell us that we, if we abide in you and your word abides in us, we may ask whatever we wish and it will be done for us. We realize, Lord, that we need to ask according to your will. And if we abide in the word, we will understand your will. Lord, we would ask today, as we gather in your presence, that you would give us a greater awareness of the way we are supposed to live, of the things we should do and shouldn't do. We pray that you would give us an ability to choose what is good and what is pleasing in your sight. But most of all, Lord, we pray for a new attitude in our hearts that we would want to please you that we would want to store up treasure in heaven. So as Cody comes to teach us, to give us your message, we pray that our hearts might be focused on your word. We pray that our ears would be open to hear and understand, and we give you the praise and honor and glory for every good gift that you have given. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Well,
1: if your Bible is not already open to Mark chapter 12, I would encourage you to do so. It's on page 849. We're continuing our study in the book of Mark. We have been taking now almost a year. Next week will be 52 weeks that we've been studying through the book of Mark, and we find ourselves in chapter 12. Imagine for me, by way of introduction this morning, a scenario, uh, one that is really horrific in nature not only horrific in nature but even powerfully destructive or potentially powerfully destructive to relationships imagine with me that when you walked through those wooden front doors this morning and as you came into the foyer what's scary to me as i thought about this is i think the technology is probably pretty close to being available that as you walk through the into the foyer some scanner in the ceiling identified who you were and pulled up everything on the internet that is there about you. And then you had the great horror as you then came through those second set of doors to look up on screen behind me and and a giant spreadsheet is all that information of everybody who walked through those doors. Your search engine results, your shopping habits, your internet habits, your spending habits. All of these things up there, your social media accounts, your vocation, where you live, the car you drive now and the one you drove 15 years ago that's required for the verification of your identity. All the addresses where you have ever lived, your social security number, I took all that information and it put it up on a giant spreadsheet. And I think one could argue this morning that our perception of one another would obviously change just a bit. But the one bit of information that would change our perception of one another more than all the others is not our internet habits. It's not our shopping or spending habits. It's not our search engine results. Maybe more than these. Maybe all of these even combined. I would argue, and I believe the Bible is doing for us this morning, the one bit of information that would probably change our perception of one another more than anything else is the spreadsheet that tells us of one another's finances. The size of your bank account. Ooh, I didn't know they had that kind of money. Ooh, I didn't know they had no money. Your monthly paycheck. Wow. They get that much and they drive that car. Wow, they get that little and they do that much. Our asset list, the status of our retirement count, the debt in your name. And we shouldn't be, we, we would probably be very discouraged, maybe even appalled at our internet viewing habits. We would certainly laugh at the old cars we used to drive. We'd think fondly of the old homes that we used to live in. We would be shocked at all the information that the internet has upon us. But even these things wouldn't change how we view one another as much as knowing how much each person has financially. How big the retirement account is and how much they gave to charity. We can turn on the radio. You can turn on the TV. You can't turn on either one of those. You can't flip onto a website and not be hit in just a few minutes, if not just a few seconds, with the latest financial news. Money is important. Money is at the center of the way our society works. Money is often how we judge a person's success and generosity. How they give is what they value. How much they make is presumed To be a direct correlation of how smart they are. Ooh, They make six figures. They must have a six figure size brain. We aren't immune to this. Even those of us who are Christians in a church today. We're not immune to this. This is the culture that we live in. Everyone knows that everyone else looks at everyone else's cars. As you just pull into any parking lot. Shoot, I'm. I haven't been in high school in years, and yet you drive by the Fredericksburg High School parking lot, and you're like, wow, there's some kids in there driving some nice cars. We see these things as status symbols, and we automatically make a mental assumption of the type of people that drive these type cars. We're simply a product of our society. But Christianity is different. Is different than society. Christianity, according to the Bible, teaches and impresses upon us ways of thinking and relating to one another that according to the world is foolish, stupid, ridiculous. Imagine another scenario. Imagine after the service, two men came up to you. One of the men came up to you and asked to speak to you with a financial question. He told you of his large seven-figure bank account number. His commitment to religion. He told you of his desire to see others prosper, his successful business venture, and a dilemma he had. The dilemma was, should he sell the current property he owns in the middle of Fredericksburg and buy a bigger place outside of town? You and I, trying to be helpful to the man, would will look at the facts, the figures, the situation, and probably announce to the man, sounds like a good idea. You have the money, you have the ability, you have the desire, go for it. Right behind him is another man who comes up and suggests a completely different question. This man earns minimum wage, paycheck to paycheck. He goes, if it's a good week, and yet some weeks find him without ends meeting. He hears of a special offering the church is taking to help a missionary. And he asks you, should he give to that offering? And probably to a man, to a person here in this room, we would wisely, seemingly, announce to him that God has provided for his needs That he should take care of his needs and family first. That it would be unwise, even presumptuous upon God, uh, upon this man to give God his last dollars when his next paycheck was days away. If we're honest with ourselves this morning, we would agree that our counsel to both men would be wise. And yet if we're also honest with ourselves this morning, we would also agree that the only counsel and direct opposition to ours is found in the black Bible sitting in front of you. There we find the parable of a man in Luke 12 who had more than he knew what to do with, wanted to tear down his barns and build bigger ones. A perfectly reasonable solution to a problem. I have more than I have space, so let me get bigger space. And yet God tells that man in the parable, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. In Mark chapter 12, and our passage this morning, We find a woman who gives all the money she has, every last cent, and Christ commends her as an example to his disciples. Christianity doesn't call us to do the things, do things the way the world calls us to do things. We're called this morning to look to our humble Lord Jesus for the grace and example to live all for him. We have a few. Uh, character studies this morning so you have the scribes on one hand you have the poor widow on the other the scribes get it wrong the poor widow gets it right the difference is knowing the answer to the question that we're going to be confronted with in verse 35 through 37 of mark 12 how can jesus be both king david's son and his lord if you've been with us some weeks or if you haven't If you take a look just around the page of the Bible in front of you, we find Christ in the middle of a strained and friction-filled conversation and interaction between him and the religious leaders. We had the scribes. We had the priests, the elders, over in chapter 11, verse 27. Then we saw that he interacted with the Pharisees and some of the Herodians in chapter 13 last week, in chapter 12 verse 18, the Sadducees come to him. Verse 28, the scribes, another scribe comes to him. This wave of opposition, the opposition ends, Christ turns the table, says, I've got a question for you. You guys who think you know the law well, let me ask you a question. Let's look at some, a, a bit of background. We notice the scribes that Christ addresses. Who are the scribes? Well, the scribes were the local Official interpreters of the law. They were lawyers. Skilled in interpreting biblical law. But they were local. So we could sort of think of them as the, the local guys here in Fredericksburg. And then maybe the headquarters in charge of those guys up in Austin. Those would be the Pharisees. And they oversaw the local scribes. These men... Wore white robes. And in that day, many wore colored robes. And so, you had this, these, these men who would dress in ways to be clearly different than everybody else. And they didn't just wear something different, they walked different. They sought the places of, of great honor. They sought the greetings of, of, of these, of high remarks. You can think of someone maybe being called the great potentate. And that's kind of what the scribes were looking for. Give me the biggest sounding names that makes me feel the most important. They were pompous peacocks parading around, wanting others to see them. And Christ addresses these religious leaders with a question. He asks, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself And the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? He he brings into play here some very wise things. One, he refers to scripture that they know well. This is Psalm 110. He also helps them understand that David was writing, not of his own accord but by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Turn in your Bible with me to Psalm 110. Right in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 110 is one of the most often quoted Old Testament passages in all of the New Testament. If you have the Pew Bible, it's on page 509. David's writing this psalm and he's writing about it in relation to God and himself. So the Lord is God says to my Lord, meaning himself. But it's a messianic psalm. It's a foretelling of Christ. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now Peter connects, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit again, that passage in Psalm 110 with Christ. Just go with me over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching... At Pentecost, and he brings this passage back into play, verse 34. Helping us understand Psalm 110, Peter tells us in Acts two thirty-four: For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him, meaning Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Hebrews 1, verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is a messianic psalm. Psalm 110. It's pointing toward Christ. Christ here in Mark chapter 12 is Having is, is discussing with the scribes in a veiled acknowledgement that he is himself the Messiah, the divine yet human fulfillment of this prophecy. And therefore he asks the question, if David says that I am his Lord, how can I also be his son? Go with me to Hebrews 2. I want to continue to explore this thought just a bit more. Hebrews chapter 2, 6 and 9, 6 through 9. As I read this, you're going to hear strains of Psalm 8. Where we're told in Psalm 8, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. That being Christ. And here in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 6 through 8, we have the same thing. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little low while, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor You have given him dominion. We can think of Adam in Genesis 1.28 that has dominion. was given dominion over the the fish in the sea and all the world. And here we have the second Adam, Christ, that's been given dominion over all things. What we're seeing clearly in Mark chapter 12 is this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, humbled himself to become the Son of Man. And he is the man that was talking to the scribes right in front of them. Or you could put it this way. Christ became a pauper son of man. That you might become a prince, son of God. That's what he's telling them right here. He's more than just a son of David. He's Lord. He has honor. Sit at my right hand. He's even now sitting ascended at the right hand of God, the Father. Christ humbled himself, giving all, not just some, but all of his life to defeat all that we might have eternal life. Christ reserves the seat. Christ Christ reserves seat in heaven. That, that right-handed seat that Christ owns now secures for us a seat in the heavenlies if we will but put our faith and trust in Christ. The king, Jesus, takes on human flesh, humankind, to divinely reign forever. And you notice it's the Lord's plan. That's what it says. The Lord said. God's plan from the fullness of time was to bring through David a son that would be forever and ever, and ever. But he did not come through the human way. He came from heaven to earth to save us. You notice that the great throng hears him and is very glad. I would imagine they're glad for at least two different reasons. One is Christ is putting it to the scribes, and they like to see these men who think they're so great humbled. And the other part is they love this Messiah language. This is the man who's going to conquer Rome. They think wrongly. In actuality, Christ is proclaiming that he himself will be the one that will conquer sin and death for all of eternity. Notice here, though, as the passage continues, 38 through 44, we have a character study of social extremes. We have the scribes on one hand, we have the poor widow on the other. And he begins with a warning, beware of the scribes. We could go to Matthew 23 and hear of seven woes or seven warnings about the scribes. In essence, what Christ is saying here is, beware of externalized religion. It looks good on the outside, but is not internalized. Beware of hypocrisy. Notice what he says. They like to be seen by others, long robes, greetings in the marketplaces, They want to be seen by those, so they want the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at the feast. It was almost by requirement that if you're going to throw a feast, you have to invite a scribe, even if you didn't like to, because they needed to be there. For a pretense, make long prayers. James 1.27 tells us, True religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And yet you see how the scribes are dealing with widows. They're devouring widows' houses. Remember, they're lawyers. So they would exact great fees upon these widows who could pay very little. And that's how they would make their money. We have these type of men even in today's world. We're called here to be wary. You're called to be wary of me. You're called to, you're warned here to be, to be wary of, of whoever has standing behind this pulpit. That we would be men of God not just by what we say but you would examine our lives. You would hold us to biblical standards. You wouldn't just examine my message but you would also examine my life. That's what he's saying here. We have we have people today that proclaim the word of God and still pray upon widows. If you want to know, go to Nanny Rose's house. The amount of mail that she gets from people wanting to pray upon her and take her money. Happens. Look on the radio. Look on the TV. Prosperity preacher. Just send in this money, ma'am. And you too can, can get this little handkerchief and be healed. It still happens today. And I, I would encourage you, pray for me. Help me. That as your pastor, I would not go down this road of, of pietistic people pleasing. Just wanting to be seen and approved by men. But may our lives, all of our lives, be conformed to the example and image of Christ. James 3 verse 1 warns us, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Even Christ here says they will receive the greater condemnation. They knew the truth and they twisted the truth for their own prideful gain. This should be even... A reminder for us in how we pray. We think of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. where We're told we're not to have long, vain repetition, even the men here. So I would encourage you men, even as we ask you to help and be a part of the service and pray a prayer of thanksgiving or a prayer of praise or other types of prayer that you really think about. Am I orchestrating and preparing, crafting my words for the praise of men or to help us see Christ and understand God and our relation to Him better? Hypocrisy is dangerous. This isn't true for just religious leaders. This is true for all of us. You walk down the street of Fredericksburg every week, and people are watching, and you don't know it. They're watching to see: do those people do what they say, or do they just say it? We should be treating others with care and respect. We should we should put others ahead of our own selves. But notice the contrast here with these religious leaders. As we come into the final section of this passage, 41 through 44, notice the contrast. We have the religious leaders, the scribes on one side. We have this poor widow on the other. First of all, you notice that Christ seats himself as if he's standing right in front of the offering box. We would sometimes think, well, Christ isn't really, God isn't really interested in our money. He's interested in our hearts. Christ is very interested in the money here. He wants to know how much people are putting in. And how much they're giving. We saw last week, verse 30, that we're called to love God with everything. All. All of our heart. All with our soul. All with our mind. And this is the proving ground right here for this passage. Money is the proving ground for whether or not we really are all committed. All committed to God. We have this poor widow. The marginalized The downtrodden who teaches by example. She comes in contrast to the large sums people are putting in. And she puts in two very small copper coins which make a penny. That penny would have been worth about a 64th of a day's wages. I ran the math for us today. If you make $7.25, which is minimum wage, eight hours a day, $58 a day, that would be like you having one dollar left to your name. Actually, it's 90 cents. And you took that 90 cents, all that was left to your name, and you put it in to the offering box. Notice what Christ says here. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, everybody in the world, and anybody who's done first, second grade, third grade math, should be able to say, what are you talking about? A dollar? Compared to this person over here who might have put in $10,000? God evaluates giving way different than men evaluate giving. 10% of $100,000 is $10,000. If you have hundred thousand dollars and you're giving ten percent, that's great. But you still have ninety thousand dollars left. If you have thousand dollars and you give ten percent, you only have nine hundred dollars left. That hundred dollars can go a lot, lot farther. You don't have near as much left. Generosity is not how much you give; it's how much you have left over after you've given. That's what God is saying here in many ways. How much? It's not how much you've given. It's how much you have left over. We think, how much I have left over? That's a weird way of looking at it. That's because we look at money backwards. It's not my money and how much should I give to God. It's God's money and how much should I keep. We're just the package delivery guy. That's all we are. We check in every day. We're bestowed with a ton of blessings. Way more than we can actually use for our own life. And he just says, go and distribute it. You know what happens when the package delivery man goes, Hey, this looks pretty good. This smells pretty good. I think I'll keep it for myself. Man's fired immediately. All that's that's all we're called to. It's not ours. We've been bought with a price. Our position in the heavenlies is not one is that is ours, it's one to be a steward of the heavenly resources that He puts at our disposal. What this woman showed here is a is a complete dependence upon God. Everything that she might have given, where she might have lacked, he supplies in abundance over the top. This woman is an example for us of gospel-fueled giving. One that says God's in charge of everything. I'm Christ and he will supply my every need. Now next week... We're going to take a look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 because there's a lot more that needs to be said about this as it pertains to the doctrine of giving. And we'll look at that. But for now, let's just see very clearly here. We have the anomaly. We have the contrast of what we think is giving compared to this woman who gives everything. As Bob Well said in the scripture reading here, she's storing up treasures in heaven. In Christ's kingdom, one may be financially rich. It's not wrong to be financially wealthy, successful, rich. But we are always called in Christ's kingdom to be those of a humble, poor in spirit nature. The spiritual riches of heaven are for the believer, all believers, irregardless of financial bank accounts. That's the, that's the joy of coming to church. You might have a hundred dollars in your bank account, you might have a thousand dollars in your bank account. you might have a hundred thousand dollars in your bank account. but it is nothing compared to the spiritual riches that we have in Christ for eternity, irregardless of your bank account, and therefore we come as very rich people eternally in Christ. Turn there with me. turn with me to in closing here, Second Corinthians chapter eight. We'll look at this more next week, but just in closing second Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ so we have we have salvation by grace alone through Christ that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Frank Houghton was, in the early 1900s, the director of the China, in- China Inland Mission. And he wrote a hymn called, Thou Who Wast Rich Beyond All Splendor. All for love's sake, Becamest poor. Thrones for a manger, Didst surrender. Sapphire paved courts for a stable floor. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, All for love's sake, Becamest poor. The riches of Christ are far and better far and away better than all the world can offer. He became rich, that you might become eternally rich. Now hear me clearly, accepting Christ won't get you rich. If that's what you want, if you want riches here on earth, don't take Christ. His short-term payment plan is not so good. If you want to sell out for short-term riches... It's one of the it's the worst investment you'll ever make, but you can do it. If you want Christ, you won't get rich. You'll get ridiculed because he was ridiculed. You'll get scorn and mocking because he was scorned and mocked. It's going to get you suffering and trials, it's going to get humbling because he was humbled and he suffered and he had trials. But it will get you heaven eternally so what are you investing in now or forever we began our study this morning with christ posing a question to the scribes he poses the same question to us this morning what do you think about the christ whose son is he matthew 22:42 or how can jesus be both king david's son and his lord and the only answer scripture gives is that he's both the son of god perfect and the son of man humbled don't rest tonight Until you know the biblical answer and have wrestled with the implications for your own eternal soul of whether or not you know Christ. Don't wait until tomorrow. It's a fool's errand to put off until tomorrow what is eternally important today. We can know a lot about a person by their money, as I opened with as an example. It's been said that money talks. Keep an eye on the money. Can tell you more about a person than just about anything else, and it's true. But what's eternally going to tell you about where you will stay, where you will stand for eternity, is your position with Christ. You can give every bit of your money. There's examples in men in history that have given ninety percent of their income. Their check comes in, and they give ninety percent of it away, and they keep ten percent to live on. But that won't buy you riches in heaven. You can come to church for the rest of your life and that won't buy you riches in heaven. You can stuff my box in the back, our box in the back full of money and that won't buy you riches in heaven. The only thing that buys you riches in heaven is being bought with a price. The price of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You put your trust in that. You buy in there. You repent of your sin and you get eternal blessings that are way more than what we could possibly buy with a few dollars or many dollars here on this earth. He is king. He has paid for us all. He desires our all. He's given us an example of how we should live. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ. How rich a treasure we possess in Jesus Christ, our Lord. His blood, our ransom and defense. His glory our reward. The sum of all created things are worthless in compare for our inheritance is sure in heaven for us there. We thank you for Christ. Impress this word upon our hearts and minds this morning. May we be fully committed to you. May this week by your grace for your glory we live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Christ lived all for us. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.